The Boardroom Podcast, sponsored by our good friends at The Board Source, theboardsource.com. You're going to want to check them out. They have a large selection of used, premium, high-quality surf craft. Go check them out, theboardsource.com. Ross Garrett has been in the surf industry for over two decades, is a principal agent at Surfline, the largest and most viewed digital surf content outlet in the world. He and the good folks at Surfline have more than a significant amount of cultural influence. He's also a longtime friend. We often surf together in and around San Diego's North County. And we worked together at Surfer Magazine at the turn of the century, circa 1999. And while I was surf traveling with Surfer Magazine like it was 1999, Ross had a longer view of the playing field. Ross is a great surfer. He's cerebral, well-read, driven, and has a kind soul with a broad and optimistic outlook. The Boardroom Podcast with Ross Garrett. Let us begin. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast, Ross Garrett. It's good to see you, buddy. Hi, Scott. Yeah, if you can get that microphone sort of, um, okay. yeah, a like closer. almost talk into it. Well, like. you don't have to do that, but mm-hmm. the closer the better. If you want, you can hold it, but that's kind of uncomfortable. I'll just tilt it up. Like yeah, that. you can scoot you the chair, whatever you want to do. I'm kind of like right here, like this is kind of a good level there. But I mean, I want you to be comfortable too. Okay, so what I usually do is I start off with kind of a crazy question. So Ross Garrett, first of all, Ross, I'm going to do an intro so they're going to know who you are and what what you're all about, more or less. Not what you're all about, but a little bit about you. But we're going to get into that too. But I want to know when was the last time you cooked dinner and what did you make? Mm. Let's see. I cooked dinner, uh, I think it was on Monday night. Might have been Sunday night. Very little food in the house. And, um, I pulled together, uh, a rice noodle spaghetti <laughs> for my kids. <laughs> and you mean uh, that's rice and noodles. Yeah. Well, together? no rice noodles, oh, rice, rice, noodles rice noodles with marinara and some meat. And I'm, I have, I don't eat meat or dairy. I've been vegan for six years. So my wife generally follows suit, so I made for us the typical rice, beans, tofu, kale, sauerkraut, bootable. So being a vegan, that's very interesting to me. Um, is it a – probably a combination of health and moral. Like what, what made you go that route? Yeah, so it started as a health thing. My I grew up. Um, knowing and being told that my dad had high cholesterol and was really like sort of in dangerous territory. And so I have that legacy anxiety. I turned some, somewhere around 32, 33, had kids of my own and was told, hey, you know, your cholesterol levels are looking a little elevated. Uh, no big deal. We'll just put you on Lipitor. And I asked the doctor, so well, what about diet? He goes, well, you can try it, but it, it probably won't work. I tried it, vegan, right out of the gates. Uh, got my blood work done three months later. My cholesterol, LDL was half. Wow. And then, you know, six months after that, it was half again, so a third right. of where it started. And um, so that was confirmation enough for me. I want to live a long life. I want to be there for my kids. But then, it, you know, as you get into it and you start to read the propaganda and listen to the, the uh, podcasts and the 
uh, movies and whatnot. There is a ecological and then also a um, kind of a humanitarian component to it that I have come to embrace, but I try not to impose on anybody else. Right. Yeah. So impose. Feel free to impose. Why should I become a <laughs> vegan? I want to know why. You know, um, I mean, I think, I think, uh, well, if you just take the environment, take the health benefit, those are, those are fairly well proven. Um, it takes a lot of effort. I will say like, it can be very unhealthy if you, if you don't put the effort and the research into what you're eating, um, on the environmental side, you know, just take cows as an example. They're, they're, the return on input as compared to vegetable sources of protein is very low and they have very high, um, you know, carbon or methane emissions, greenhouse gas causing emissions. Yeah. Um, so that's no bueno. And then on the kind of the fish side, just the, the fishing practices in general, uh, as an ocean lover, the commercial fishing practices outside of our jurisdiction, outside of, you know, the, the government, um, watchdogs of the United States are, are pretty, uh, disastrous. Yeah. And, and so a lot of the pelagic fish are not in good shape. So I think those two reasons would be great sort of environmental components. And then, um, you know, on the ethical side, I, I, uh, I, after you don't eat meat for a long time and you, you start to think about, um, doing it again, it, it sort of strikes you as odd. Like, why do I need to, why do I need to kill another creature if mm-hmm. I don't, if I haven't been for right. such a long time? So it, it's a weird one. It's a mind bender. I'm not, I'm not a peta person or anything like that. It just grows on you that maybe you don't need to do that. That's kind of interesting. So you have a sense that you're killing a soul. Like it feels as if when you kill a cow, you're killing a soul, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Like- I mean, now we're, that's sort of metaphysical, right? I, I don't know that animals have souls or that people do and animals don't, but um, and I don't have a strong belief about that, but I do have a friend, um, inspirational friend, his name's Air, and his philosophy, his dietary philosophy is he doesn't eat anything that um, has a central nervous system because if it has a central nervous system, ostensibly it feels pain. So I, I, I think that's an interesting perspective to have. So he'll eat unfertilized eggs, but he won't eat, uh, you know, wow. living animals. Lots of philosophy. There's a lot of cool stuff to chew on there. No pun intended. I guess you can chew on tofu though, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Mostly just slides right down. (laughs) Is your diet boring? Because I'll tell you, I do a a paleo thing, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of meat proteins, Mm -hmm. but but it's a lot of salads. There's no cheese. There's no blah, blah, blah. And it kind of gets like, okay, I'm having a salad again. Yeah. So I was a really boring eater before veganism. Like I had no interest in cooking. I mean, I appreciated great food and my wife's an incredible cook. So I benefited there, but becoming vegan, you all of a sudden you have to, you have to pay attention to what you eat. And then, yeah, the ingredients maybe are, are in some way limited, but there's so many unique ways. And especially now people are making these incredible concoctions out of plant basis. And it's just like, it's mind blowing how many ways you can eat, but you know, yeah, no, it's, it's not boring. There's there's plenty to eat. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Ross, let's, let's bring it back to your upbringing, right? You and I know that you're from Del Mar. But why don't you tell me about where did you catch your first wave? What was it like for you? Uh, how did you get your start in sort of the surf culture? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great story. Um, I was afraid of the ocean until I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And I was still afraid, but I, it, I, my desire to surf overcame my my fear around that time. Um, I had a cousin from Hawaii. His name's Kalani Schrader. He's an awesome guy. He's, he's 10 or 15 years older than me, and he was my hero growing up. And so I had this strong desire to be in the water and be a surfer just because I thought it was cool, and I thought he was awesome. Um, tried it a couple of times. and just couldn't overcome my fear. And then eventually um, my whole crew of friends started getting, getting into it, and fortunately I was friends with a kid named Casey Blackburn. His dad's Jim Blackburn, North County surfers probably know Jim. He's a tabletops local, and we all started surfing out at tabletops, which is you know at the southern end of Encinitas, northern end of Solana Beach, and um, caught my first wave out there. Surfed a ton. Just so happened that just right around the corner from tabletops, which is kind of like a cruisy spot, is the most hyper competitive surf spot in North County at Seaside. And at that time in the era, uh, this was like late '80s, early '90s. It was Rob Machado. 
Taylor Steele, all the momentum generation guys coming into town and surfing there. And so we'd walk down to tables and I'd kind of like pick my head up and look over the berm and see people flying through the air and doing all these tricks. And eventually I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't not go over there. And so I started surfing seaside, fell in with that crowd. Um, I ended up actually working for, for Taylor, uh, for Taylor and his mom shipping videos out of the garage just so I could be close to that whole Taylor, Taylor Steele. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Taylor Steele. And, um, it was just, it was like a dream come true as a grom growing yeah. up and just being near all of these idols and these people that were just so talented that you watched 7,000 times on the VHS tape over and over and over again. So, so it, it's, I know that the momentum generation, like now we really know that it was a huge part of, of, it's like a foundational keystone in your surfing experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean that, that was, I was maybe, you know, five or six years behind those guys. Yeah. But Kalani Rob was pretty close in age to me. Taylor's younger brother, Cody is, is, um, basically my age. And so I was just drafting off of, you know, no pun intended, the momentum that those guys were making. And, um, it was so fun to be in that wake at that time. Um, yeah, so that, that's where I started, ended up, um, you know, graduating up to Swami's eventually and becoming part of that scene probably for a little while. But Swami's and Seaside kind of yeah. in Encinitas. Yeah. And how did you get your foot in the door in the surf industry? Uh, so I was a pretty tenacious, um, you know, career minded college kid and, got uh I, I bugged lisa eilertson and steve hawk at surfer magazine um my freshman year for an internship which i guess was a little um you know ambitious freshman getting an internship but bugged them until they opened my letter and and they said yeah you can come on down i open mail for the summer what what when was that um that was 1997 mm-hmm. um and just got exposed to the magazine culture did it again the following summer. Um, and then, you know, right as I was graduating from college, the swell.com and hard cloud and like that kind of like 1998, 1999 web thing started drafting the editorial staffs of the magazines. And I was um, affiliated with the Hurley brand at that time as a surfer. And um, someone from the magazine said, hey, we're losing all our editors. We need somebody you know anyone and bob hurley and his son jeff were like yeah you should you should meet this guy so i already had had a couple of stints as an intern and just it was a it was a natural fit so you you worked at surfer magazine you came in at surfer magazine mm-hmm. in like 2001 or something or 2000 so 2000. The, the, the day after i graduated was my first day how uh, great is surfer that magazine yeah it was it was neat kevin Meehan gave me a shot and um yeah, you 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 were there. I was working time. there. Yes, and, yes. Uh, yeah, working under Sam George, which um, was just an incredible time in, in the magazine. That was fun. Yeah, that's cool. So you're at Surfer Magazine, and I remember um, when you came in, and right away, I I sort of had you pegged as the smartest guy in the room, and I was frustrated there. I'm wondering, was it frustrating working in sort of a stifling corporate work environment having to deal with guys like me like what was your experience like there because it seemed like as soon as you got there it was time to move on yeah i mean i i uh i have a tendency i think to to like you know have my sights set on whatever's next and i i would take that actually as a weakness so if i gave that off um i'm not proud of it necessarily but but no, I don't think it was stifling. I was so stoked to be part of that and felt so fortunate to yeah. to have my avocation and vocation kind of like merge together. I I had a plan in my mind in college that I would either um, work at a surf magazine, primary goal, secondary would be to go to law school. And if I couldn't get into law school, I would go be a teacher. Those are my sort of like one, two, three options. And I couldn't believe that number one actually happened. So I was super, super stoked. Um, there's certainly, you know, some disillusionment around um, peeking behind the curtain and seeing how things really work. But, but no, it was it was awesome. And refresh my memory. What was your title when you came on? Were you the associate at managing editor, right? Uh, yeah, I, w- I was associate editor um, starting, but 
you know, Sam George for all of his talent and storytelling and surf history and kind of like um, just being a creative individual, I think he would admit he's, he's not really sort of like an administrator. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, he's not an administrative. Um, you're right. He would be the first one to say. I think he'd be the first to. Admit. We need to hire somebody. <laughs> and and I just saw the need and um, maybe considered myself a little lower on the talent level in terms of the creativity as compared to him. And so I just grabbed hold of it and started managing the editorial process and ma- managing the editorial budget and uh, doing the planning and and really trying to set the course according to Sam's vision. And so pretty quickly became managing editor and um, and. Yeah, ran that part of it. Now, this was a time, as you mentioned, sort of this dot-com era, and and there was a definite magazine mentality, a print mentality, because it was it wasn't a it wasn't considered Surfer Magazine wasn't considered a a like a content hub. It was considered a magazine. At some point, you you saw the light and were like, "This thing's going away," and. Yeah. Did, was yeah. there a sense that you saw the light and no one else saw the light? Yeah. I mean, I, I always had, uh, particularly when I got to Surfing Magazine and I was a publisher, which is like sort of being a glorified ad sales manager in the, in the big sort of prime media company structure, I always had a sense of dread in the back of my mind that like someday everyone's going to wake up and decide that print magazine advertising is not for them. Yeah. And um, so that in that one, I, I did feel anxious and eager to find out what was next. I didn't know what was next, but I always had a, a bit of a sense of dread there and a lack of faith in, in advertising in print as an enduring business model. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was a little nerve wracking for sure. When I was publisher of, of surfing, that was probably the highest stress part of my life. Yeah. And at some point and, and help me out with this cause uh, it's all a little foggy for uh-huh. me, but at some point, you're like, I'm out. And, and you were, um, and this might've been before surfing maybe, but you're like, I'm out, I'm going to law school. Yeah. Yep. And they, somebody had a talk with you and they, they talked you back into coming yeah. back. Yeah. So I, I, uh, after a few years at surfer magazine, um, the, I was kind of pretty evident. I was capped out as in terms of my growth there. Either Sam wasn't going anywhere or Chris Morrow wasn't going anywhere Kevin Meehan, Rick Irons, they weren't going anywhere. So um, just felt like it was a good time for me to dig in and advance into a different phase of life. And so I, I, um, my dad's an attorney, so it was a little bit of a Luke Skywalker thing. I, I uh, took the LSAT, did reasonably well. I'm like, okay, this is a sign. I should pursue this. Applied to law school, went to law school. Um, did the first year, loved it. Like absolutely fascinating, incredible Hard work, a lot of hard work, but really cool. Um, and then in the summer after my first year, Don Meek gave me a call and said, hey, we've got a job. It's a publisher job, Surfing Magazine. And that was the job that I never thought would become available. Yeah. And so I looked at my then-girlfriend at the time, who was almost, you know, I could tell was going to be my wife, and just said, hey, I can either go and take this job and make money and put law school on hold or I can go back to law school for two more years and spend a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that choice was pretty clear. Yeah. So yeah, I got drawn back into the magazine world and, um, and you became the publisher became of surfing, publisher magazine. surfing. Yeah. Yeah. We interrupt the podcast to tell you about our main sponsor, the boardsource.com high quality used premium surfing craft, the boardsource.com. They update their website daily from gliders to grommet boards and everything in between the boardsource.com. Go check them out, theboardsource.com. Have you any thoughts about going back to law school? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, that seems like something you should do, yeah, quite frankly. Yeah, if I ever won. I hate to sound pro- no, patriarchal, no, but. If I ever won the lottery, it would be the first thing I did. But I, I would have to start all over. Oh, really? Yeah, American Bar Association requires you to start back at no big square deal. one. Yeah. You got this. Just one year. Um, so you, after surfing as the publisher, at some point, Foam magazine gets involved. Like at some yep. point you get real entrepreneurial yep. and you're like, I'm out. Yep. Or or tell me about foam. Where were you? Were you a principal? Was it your baby? How did that all go about? Yeah. So that and what was foam for the listeners? They sure. Might yeah. So I was at Surfing Magazine. I met a fellow named Jeff Berg. Jeff is a is a business person, comes from kind of the financial world, 
was involved in the capitalization and planning and strategy around Swell, which for the listeners, that was 1999. It was, it was surfings.com moment, right? It was an aggregation of talent and e-commerce and subscription and content. And it was going to be this like super hub for digital, for, for surfing and actually skateboarding and snowboarding. But they never got to those two verticals. Um, Jeff Berg was the kind of one of the principals there who, who set that in motion. Jeff, what, when Swell went away, Jeff retained or bought, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, the details, ownership positions in Surfline and Swell. So, so let me back up because I think what happened is Surf, Sean sold Surfline to Berg's group. It was called Swell. And then this whole dot-com thing kind of blew up in everyone's faces. And Swell... Was no longer, but that's and, right. And can pick it up from there. That's right. That's right. Um, so Jeff, you know, he's he's a really neat guy. Tons of integrity. Has been a hardcore surfer his whole life, um, and was continued to be involved in both Surfline and Swell as an investor and steward of those businesses. And Jeff and I met one another, and he purchased. So Surfline purchased Water Magazine. Jeff purchased Foam Magazine in a in an entity called Airborne Media, and um, Foam was intent is a female action sports publication, action sports fashion publication. And Jeff's intent was for it to be a bridge between the Swell customer and the Surfline customer to some degree. And then we had a we had another digital strategy that we were pursuing, um, and but really Foam sucked all the air out of the room. So. I went and joined Jeff after Surfing Magazine. Uh, wanted to just get exposure to, yeah, like a kind of a quasi startup environment. It was um, wasn't FOMA. Was it a women's magazine? Women's magazine. Okay, yeah. so you, now you're going. I'm, I've got to go sell advertising in the print world again. And it's <laughs> yeah. but thank God at least it's the women. Yeah, and it felt it it felt very under commercialized to me. Like coming from Surfing Magazine, where everyone was doing two, three, four spreads of advertising, FOM was missing all of these incredible customers, and there was a b- deep hunger in the industry for somebody to adequately represent the women's side of their business. Yeah. So um, I just saw it as this huge opportunity. I got a lot of raised eyebrows when I made that call. I, yeah. I had people literally call me and they're like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and I just you mean about this, print or about women? Just, yeah, both. both. Yeah. yeah, mostly about the women's thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just saw it as this huge opportunity to learn and, and had a natural affinity for Jeff and thought he was a neat guy. So yeah, I went and did that with him and that was 2007. I believe. Did you have equity in that, or was it just like a sweat equity thing? Um, yeah, we. Ha- I. I mean, I don't. Had, I don't want. Yeah. I don't mean to pry too much, but I thought that there was some equity after the whole. Yeah, there was some opportunity yeah. for me to to um, to realize the success. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well put. Yeah, and um, and so that was 2007, and and you know what happened then, you're right? The economy started to get wobbly, and um, Jeff and I just felt like with everything going on in the industry and in the economy at large, um, it was, it was better to sell it. Right. So I found a buyer yeah. and sold it to them. They did a great job with it for about three or four years and then didn't do a great job with it. So it's, I, I don't think foam exists anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had a great little team. It was super fun. I think we did a great job representing what, what the women's culture of surfing was all about. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was great fun. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, to me, I see that space back then, especially as like, nobody's doing this. And it's, I hate to use the word easy, but it's all of these Billabong and Quicksilver, all of these women's divisions of these companies are going, please, yeah. like we're begging to write you a check. That's right. It yeah. must have been cool. Yeah, that's that that's what it seemed like, you know, and you get in there and try and get Squeeze them to part the way with their dollars. <laughs> and and it, it, the story might change a little bit, but right. no, we had a lot of great support from the industry for sure. Yeah. So the next phase for you is Surfline, right? Mm. So you... No, there was one more stop on the bus. Oh, okay. Uh, After Foam, I went to the Surfer's Journal. Oh, that's uh, right. Yes. Yeah, so I had a little bit of time between leaving Foam, selling it, which the transaction took a certain amount of time, and um, Steve and Debbie were looking for somebody to run the business so they could step away a little bit. 
you know, you're still in print. The anxiety of print is lingering. <laughs> but I remember, if I remember correctly, you sort of had, at this point, you're like e-commerce. You were thinking digitally. I was thinking digitally. Uh, I loved, I still love the Surfers Journalist business model. It's a subscription-based business model. They earn the right to be in business through customer appreciation, yeah, not through advertising. And right. um, Surfline is very much the same way. And, uh, and yeah, just was a great opportunity to go over there and work with them and get them a little bit more digitally facing. Um, so went over there for a handful of years and worked with Steve and Debbie yeah. and Scott and just yeah. and divine, just the whole crew. They're, yeah. That fabulous people. Yeah. And, and how, why did you leave there and what got you over to Surfline? How did that transition go down? Yeah. So ultimately, um, Ultimately, Surfline offered me a job, and yeah. it was the right time for me. It was the right time for the Pesmans. Um, so I took the job at Surfline. And what was your title, and what is your title there now? So I started at Surfline as a product person. And in digital, for people that don't work in the digital space, they hear product, and it sounds really weird. Like, what is a product? A product is a mug or a phone or a pen. It's not like, what product is there in digital? Right. And product and digital is really like the experience that you have. So um, a feature would be like a cam on Surfline or the forecast on Surfline. But the product is the sum total of those parts. Mm-hmm. So, product, so the user experience was your job, basically. Yeah, yeah, you work closely with the user experience people. It's a bit more strategic and a bit more um, analytical mm-hmm. around crafting a business model through a product experience and mm-hmm. then you work with UX and you work with the engineers and you work with um, the commercial teams and the marketing teams to try and like bring all that to life. Right. So that's how I started. Um, I worn a lot of hats there. I ran the surf kind of the surf division for a little while. We have a, we have a couple of Marine sites, a mm-hmm. site called fish track and a site called buoy weather. And so we kind of did a divisional strategy uh, based off of vertical market. So we, were like that for a little while and then uh ultimately now serve as president of the company right and um so buoy weather i remember that guy and he owned fish track too didn't he Mm-mm. i thought he had another thing he had buoy weather and he had something else i thought yeah i i um i don't know him super well yeah i know that we acquired buoy weather quite yeah. some time ago i think it was I mean, it was a long it was like 15 years yeah ago. it might have been yeah. before you were at yeah because yeah. I, I, yeah anyway and um guy was from hawaii who's a cool guy yeah just a, yeah just like a yeah i think his name's dan martin exactly yeah um fish track shares a lot of attributes with buoy weather where it's a point-based experience you pick a lat- latitude and longitude on a map and it gives you data and a forecast um but it's tailored specifically for the offshore fishing experience right whereas buoy weather is sort of general purpose marine Surfline for years and years and years. When I thought of Surfline, or I think I can generalize and say the public surfers thought of Surfline, there was an obvious face to Surfline, and that was Sean Collins. And sadly, he died very young and unexpectedly. There hasn't been a face to Surfline, at least have been able to fill the shoes of Sean Collins. And quite frankly, it would be unfair to have somebody try to fill the shoes of Sean Collins. Tell me a little bit about the concept that perhaps you guys struggled with, and maybe you weren't even there when that went down. I'm not sure of the years, but um, this this concept of having a lead forecaster the way that Sean was, or having a public face, what has that struggle been like? Yeah, so I uh, my connection to Sean is is sort of like cosmically odd. I I never interviewed with Sean, but I accepted the job while he was still alive, and he passed away. I think a week or two weeks before I started. So it was very wow. odd, right? Yeah. Like it, it's, and I knew Sean, but I didn't know him super well. Um, I know what he stands for and I know what he was all about. Um, so that's kind of my, I didn't overlap with Sean at all in the business, um, but have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And obviously we're all grateful for, for the opportunity that his seed of inspiration has created as it relates to how we have transitioned into having like a face affiliated with Surfline, you know, I don't, I don't think we've consciously tried to replicate Sean. Sean was Sean, yeah, right. Um, 
we have a lot of great forecasters and we've made, we've remained committed to the human forecast aspect of our business. There's a lot of sites out there that just spin up model data that you can look at. We actually hire staff, 16 different surf meteorologists to read the data and explain it in our analysis. So we've maintained that aspect of what Sean did and what he stood for in our product. And, um, and then we do have people that are on TV, on you know, contest webcasts, and help. Yeah, it, it feels like did. Kevin Wallace is the guy that seems to be the the, the most public facing figure, right? And and by the way, I get it. Like if you're Chris Borg or Kevin Wallace or any of the other guys, they're all going, dude. We can't fill Sean Collins' shoes, and we don't really want to. Now we can do forecasts, but I'm sure there was a lot of like so much respect really for Sean that they were kind of like, Hey, I'm just, it's kind of fascinating how that kind of all transpires. For sure. Yeah. And I, I can't speak for how they actually feel about it other than to say that like, they all have a lot of reverence for Sean and, um, and definitely we all feel a, a debt of gratitude to his vision. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. What about um, the concept of surf journalism on Surfline? Um, does, what are your thoughts on surf journalism in general? Um, you know, I think a lot of surf journalism has gone the way of journalism in general, which is, you know, kind of clickbaity get into the controversy and try and get people to engage with it, which is unfortunate. Is that journalism? No, I, I, I mean, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, does is. surf journalism just, exist or is that something else we should have? A- no, I, I mean, I think it, I think, um, yeah, that, that's another sort of philosophical question. That's I think, what the T is for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, T please. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, we, one of the, one of our experience principles is guide the tribe. So, and, and another is inspire me. And so we, through our content, try to guide the tribe of surfing so that the most amount of people can have the greatest experience possible. If that means we tell them a great story about G-Land, or that means that we tell them a great story about um, Doc Paskowitz, or that means we give them travel tips, or that means we do an interview with um, Jamie Mitchell, like that's the that's the framework that we're operating in is are we guiding the tribe? Are we inspiring them? Are we connecting them with their local surf community? Hmm. So the idea of, um, well, obviously any sort of in-depth, when was the last time you read a really good piece of surf journalism? Um, I mean, yesterday, you know, I, I, uh, Nick Carroll writes for us regularly Nick, Nick's work is incredible. Um, I think even the snarky, you know, like uh, people in our in our space, like there's some amazing journalism happening from them. You know, um, people that aren't afraid to take on controversial issues. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think so. Do you feel like being generated. do you feel like Stab or Beach Grit or and Nick Carroll and so you feel like there's 
there's good legitimate surf journalism going down. I think so. Yeah. I think that there's so much access to information and data and ways to analyze our, our sport and our culture and, um, access artifacts. And like, there's just so many rich ways to tell those stories. It might feel less significant because it's not printed on a sheet of paper, but, and it feels a little more fleeting or, or like, you know, our, our attention spans just don't have the yeah. effort for but it. But it doesn't mean that it's less quality. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and I think that's something that we're trying to do. We, we recently launched premium content on Surfline. It's the stuff with the little green flags. And for our premium members, we're trying to create stories, franchises, and serialized content that they wake up in the morning excited to check out and read and digest. And they feel a part of the culture. And they feel informed and connected to their local surf community inspired and right like that's yeah. what we're, we're we're aiming to do um i think we've still got some work to do there but you know we, we've got a couple wins under our belt so yeah i think there's room for it i think that we can and need to do it yeah yeah the light went on with me it's sad to say after i was at surfer magazine i had no idea that surfer magazine was a marketing vehicle for the surf industry. I thought we were this highbrow journalistic vehicle. Yeah. Where screw Rick Irons and the advertising department, we're going to talk about this. And it's because, oh, you know, aren't we cool? Mm-hmm. And um, just recently the light went on <laughs> for me. And again, I'm a little naive. I'm a little slow to get there. Surfline, do you, is it hard to weave between objectively telling what is truth and and tell and guiding the tribe as you say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also marketing to our clients yeah i mean i think for us similar to the journal you know subscription is our primary business objective and it's our primary revenue source so our duty our first duty is to our subscribers and our and our users we don't feel the need to like overtly diss the industry like we're part of the industry and we love our industry brand partners and there's lots of things that we're aligned on yeah um so we don't do that but at the same time we don't just pander yeah uh, we we do have branded content which is stuff that we develop in in partnership with the brands uh but by and large it's content that we create because we think the users want to read it and we think that it's important to them these principles that you you mentioned guide the tribe what was the other one Connect me to my connect surfing me. passion, inspire me, um, connect me to my local uh, surf community. Are these internal principles or are these things that I, because b- by the way, for the record, I'm a huge fan of Surfline and I'm actually a paid subscriber. I don't even think you guys give it to me for free <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I think it's a great value. It's a ridiculous value actually. What is it like 60 bucks a year? Or I think I pay 70 bucks a year. 96 96 it went up and you didn't tell me what's the deal here so 90s i don't know do the math but it's stupid it's like it's like 75 cents a day or something silly yeah it's not expensive it's ridiculously it's a great value Uh, i'm a huge fan um but these guiding these principles that you mentioned are these principles that i should know because i'm i've been a uh i I mean i i check surfline every single day as do millions of other surfers should i know these things or are these internal yeah, they, it's kind of inside baseball. It's what we we guide ourselves with. It's not something we express it externally, except right. when I'm talking to you on a podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think you should feel it in what you see from us. Yeah. We're doing it right, and I don't think we have gotten it right as far as we want to yet. And the team all, I think everybody would agree with me on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I Surfline today. You know, I think we're the largest. It's pretty clear we're the largest surfing experience on the internet in the world and we're all surfers and we're all passionate about surfing and surf culture and our contribution to that so we try and take these things seriously we try and be good stewards of the the sport and the experience well you're certainly the largest and getting larger right um you've purchased buoy weather magic seaweed a couple years ago you just purchased coastal watch So it seems like your strategy is to continue to acquire. At least that's what the past suggests. It's funny. I was scouring out around today. I was like, okay, what are they going to buy next? You know? And so I was like, uh, Brazil webcams would be pretty smart. 
and Japanese webcams would be pretty smart. But in many ways, you already have partnerships with some of these areas. Is this how you guys look at things? Do you look at things like Brazil's a huge market? We should probably own Brazil. And when I say own, I mean like you know, like you have own. Let's there. be. Let's be. Yeah, I, I mean, frankly, you guys own the digital space in North America and beyond. I don't think that's a stretch. Is this part of the strategy to continue to? Yeah, um, you know, I, we we don't have like a real, um, we don't have some sort of like acquisition like roadmap that we're like, oh, we're going to take Australia and then we're going to you know, go after this next country. Like, uh, that's not really how we look at it. We know that there are big surf markets. There's fewer of them now, right? Now we're, we have a presence in Australia, a presence in in the UK and Europe, um, North America, as you mentioned, there are surf markets where we don't have as strong a presence, but, um, we, we look at those as places of opportunity, but we've got a lot on our plate. You know, I, I think, um, even Australia, we weren't necessarily looking at this moment to (laughs) be active in Australia, but the opportunity arose and it was a great opportunity and we love the coastal watch brand. We love, how similar their business model is to ours and how significant they are in Australian surf culture. So yeah, it's a bit more opportunistic than strategic, I would say, but now it's very much strategic. Like we've got to, we've got to put those pieces together. Yeah. But it, w- it wouldn't come as a surprise to me if in a few years there's more cam network acquisitions. I mean, this seems to be a strategy. Uh, cameras are definitely a strategy. You know, we think cameras are, are, um, really great and important to the to our value proposition we just launched surfline sessions which um i don't know if you've gotten a chance to use but i haven't but tell us about surfline yeah, sessions because so i'm uh, kind of fascinated by it actually it's and it, it yeah there's so much to talk about with regard to surfline sessions but it connects if you wear an apple watch and on october 15th and later uh depending on when people listen to this you can also use a rip curl search gps watch and connect your session tracking with our cameras and by the time you get out of your wetsuit you have an auto edited highlight reel of your session on video and you email that to me no you get it within our app okay so you so go to the app a, and yeah, you there's type a, in your login and yep and it's on ios only right now uh but you if you go to the there's a middle tab now called sessions and if you click on that you see a feed of your data around your rides in your session as well as the clips from your session um yeah, and it's super exciting. Cameras obviously are super integral to doing that in an, an effective way. So we think we need to increase the value of our camera experience through additional angles and higher resolution. And so that's all stuff we're pretty invested and excited about. Is Surfline a tech company? Do you consider yourself a tech company? Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, for me, the definition of technology is doing more with less so technology enables us to do more with less So definitely in that regard surfline is a tech company in the parlance of sort of industry are we do we have like computer software engineers and um, work with data and computers like we do that too so we check the box on tech company but yeah i think we are a tech company uh but that belies what we're trying to do what we're trying to do is create an, an experience yeah. through, through technology if I go on to Surfline, you guys know I'm on there. I'm logged in. You know which cams I'm checking, which cam rewinds I'm checking. I'm not ashamed to say. You know which features I'm clicking on. You know a lot about me. Now with the Surfline sessions, you're going to know even more about me. You're going to know when I surfed, how long I surfed, where I surfed. What should we be concerned with regarding data privacy? As you know, Ross, there's been sort of this what they call a tech lash or a backlash on tech because of Facebook and the elections and Google and everything that's happening with, with data privacy. What's the official, because I feel like I've got you in official mode. I can tell that you're like, okay, I better spit out <laughs> the company line here. Yeah. So what is the company line on data with, if I start to use Surfline sessions and do all of these things? Where do, where do I stand with my privacy in Surfline? Yeah, well, first of all, from, a, from an actual like public facing consumer experience standpoint we are we're in what we call single player mode with surfline sessions right now so none of your data is visible to anybody except for you 
your rides, your your um, your data, they're all only visible to you. We want to get into multiplayer mode where you can allow other people to see your stuff. You can make it public. You could have it quasi-public and have your friends look at it. We think that that'll be really engaging and fun for people. Um, but as it stands today, it's 100% you and, and Surfline right. who are aware of your data. Um, and then we are... Do you sell the data? We don't. No, we're, we're super protective of the data. There's there's ample opportunities for us to um, sell. Do you think that that's a marketing opportunity to, to really step up and go, hey, we love your privacy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it <laughs> seems like anytime somebody says that, then they have some kind of a breach or some crazy thing happens to them. So, Oh, um, you guys are a little worried? Of- <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not. We're not worried about it. We have really good engineering and really good... Um, infrastructure engineers but it's just not something for us to stake a claim on i think like I, because something could go wrong um no i mean yeah something me, could go wrong to me but like, it's not like that, like it would be a it might be a good thing to do it seems like it'd be a good thing to go hey man we look, don't we, are, we are offering all this cool stuff yeah, yeah. but we want you to know that we're doing our damnedest yeah you could be right I, maybe that's something we should add to our our marketing I'm just yeah. I'm just riffing with yeah, that. Yeah. I'm no, not looking for a job. Yeah. <laughs> you could be our data privacy steward. <laughs> this it's interesting this multiplayer mode that you speak about. Like it seems like there's a ton of opportunities. So when I put my business hat on, I'm like, okay, cool. Now I've got my son and Ross's son, and they're having actually a contest against each other. Like I'm sure that you guys have had those fun coffee fueled sort of like spitball sessions where things are going crazy i mean are, are we going like can you give me a little sneak under peek under the hood as to where we might be going with multiplayer or multi-usage of the surfline sessions yeah sure i mean i think all those things come to mind you know there's so much um we could in, we can include gamification we could include social layers so that you know you could see what your friends are doing we think about cool stuff like um creating challenges you know yeah. Like, exactly. hey, first person to paddle to Hawaii, right? we add up all your paddling miles. Oh, and, wow. You know, first person to paddle to Hawaii gets a trip to Hawaii. That, that sort of thing. Like, it, there's lots of fun we could have with it. Yeah. But, what about back paddle, like shaming back paddlers? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of evil stuff. Well, if we, I mean, if we can get everybody adopting the product, we could know who the biggest snakes are in the lineup. But that would require 100% adoption at even the most ambitious people in our company, I don't think expect it. <laughs> what is the adoption percentage that we're shooting for? Like, say, year one? Uh, couldn't say. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed, I, I, happened, I did a, a spit podcast yesterday with David Lee Scales, and we, we were talking a lot about the Hollister Ranch. And I noticed that there's no surf report for the Hollister Ranch on Surfline from, I think it's from Refugio to Point Conception. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a blank space. That's right. Yeah. Can you speak to, on October 13th, Governor Newsom, it's almost guaranteed he's going to sign legislation, a new law that opens up Hollister Ranch public access. What are your thoughts on this very, very touchy subject regarding that piece of land and those surf spots and the, the 50, 60 years of mm-hmm. freaky gray surf culture that surrounds that area. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I've earned the right to have a super strong opinion about whether private or public is better. I mean, I can see the arguments on both sides. Well, we know for a fact that those are public surf spots. Yes. Yes. And now yeah. they're going to open it so that from the land access, yeah. people can go there and surf there. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't, again, I don't think I, I don't feel qualified to comment on like whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I can see the benefit for it being private in terms of the preservation of the. But do you think area. Surfline will have surf reports? It's oh, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we aren't trying to, I'll put it this way. It's our, one of our other principles is to make surfers' lives better. That's kind of a guiding principle that we have. And so on the balance, when we think about surf spots that are either less known or less frequented, the question is, is it, is it worth us making them more known and more frequented for 
wet, right, for some business gain. And we typically err on the side of saying, no, it's not worth that. We want to let people find it on their own. We want to let people kind of figure out the forecasting for that particular area on their own. And Hollister Ranch isn't the only place like that in the world. There's a lot of places um, like that. And But once something is like really publicly used and it's a pretty known spot and like certainly like but then then our duty becomes to help people understand what's going on there right yeah. because it's uh, it's highly trafficked so we don't want to be the drivers of that we just want to respond with our product right accordingly so there won't be surf reports if they open that up until you sense that there's so many people actually using the access to those spots basically you're going to let the thing breathe and yeah. just and just play it by ear yeah yeah let me ask you this. Are there principles that are involved with Surfline that are property owners there? Um, I don't think so. There's a, there's a couple people that could be, but, but I don't know. And does that drive any of the decision-making? No, absolutely not. Like I, you are good. You are so smooth. You're <laughs> coming no, up with I mean, all the right I'm not, I'm not. I'm being completely serious. Like That has never yeah. entered into our thought process whatsoever. Well, for the record, yesterday I... You know, my statement is on this is, is I think that there's something deep down in my heart of hearts, even though I've never been there and I'll never experience it. I'm kind of like the idea that something like that still exists and I'm okay with never experiencing it. And even though I'm sure that there are some jerks at those spots who, God forbid, I mean, if, if anyone looked at my past history, they'd, they'd, they'd call me a hypocrite. So I'm kind of okay with the way it is now. And it's, it, something tells me it's kind of unfortunate, although I understand the public should have access, you know, to our beaches. Yeah. Yeah. It's a public resource. We live in a crowded world. Like these pressures exist, right? And they're, they're going to grow. So we, we've got to deal with them. And Does Surfline have an official statement on Hollister Ranch being open to the public? <laughs> like- yeah, that's actually the first time I've heard that. I. I'll tip off our news team. I didn't realize that. Um, they probably already know. No, we don't. Not it's yet. Not, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not. Again, I don't. That's not like our business, right? <laughs> like, should we? Are you saying? Well, I'm just, I mean, from a journalistic standpoint, it would be like, hey, we're the biggest surf news aggregator. Oh no, no, but, we'll tell people that that happened. But you won't have a statement. You won't have an. A, I mean, I don't think we need to take a stance on whether right. it's a good thing or a bad thing. Time will tell. Right. right? And I, you know, if it's, if that's true and it's going to open, like I would just encourage the entire surf community that gets to now easily access those surf spots to take great care of them, leave them better than you found them. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what we're hoping happens. Yeah. If we have any opinion on the matter. Right. So no surf line sessions happening at rights and lefts in any time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can track them. You can track the right now. Way, you can track them. By the way, I'm that guy that when I'm surfing at a spot, if I ask you what time it is, it's not because I really care what time it is. I need to go back and check the cam rewind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to exactly. raise my hand right now and just, yeah. I'm that kook. Yeah, no, I'm okay for sure. It. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you're sort of, I don't know if focused is the right word, but you, you're completely bought in on the concept of a physical surf forecast human being. Is there some point in the future when AI takes over, it's so good that, it makes sense from a business standpoint to not have so much overhead. Let's trim a few guys. Let's just keep one or two main guys so that we have a face, but we really don't need all of these guys. I mean, the bathymetry is the bathymetry. The swell's the swell. The wind's the wind. The low pressure's the low pressure. The fetch. I mean, AI has got us covered. Are we going to see a time in, say, I don't know, let's say 10 years, I bet it's sooner, when there's two forecasters instead of 20? And I know what you're going to say because you got your forecasters listening to this right now. Well, no, I, I mean I, AI is happening, man. It's coming. Yeah. Like let's let's open our eyes here. Yeah. So just to comment on that, like um, we have a we have a data science team. They work on our models. We create our own models. Um, They're we, unreal, by we, the way. Yeah, and we actually have two of them now: the Lola model, which is the one that Sean developed uh, for Surfline with with some outside um, scientists, and then. We have uh, a model that Magic Seaweed's founder, Ben, created. And both both are great and both perform well in different types of scenarios and conditions. 
we will be creating, there really is one right answer to the question, right? What's the surf going to be like tomorrow, the next day, whatever. There is one optimal answer. So we will move towards a, a, a situation most likely where we have in time where we have one optimal model and that model will be in some way machine learning enabled, right? Mm -hmm. Which is AI. Um, but even in that world, I can't see a time where the forecasters can't continue to move up the value chain. They like instead of them right now, our forecasters determine whether it's fair to good, good to epic, port affair for hundreds of spots around the world. If a computer can do that, they'll be smiling ear to ear, and they'll work on things that are, you know, more important and more valuable. So that's how we see that going, and I think there's a ton of value that they can add. Okay. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I'm like, are oh, they going to be washing your car? No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, I mean, when we, we just posted a story yesterday about um, Southern Hemi that originated in the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean, other side of Australia, right? That Southern Hemisphere swell was predicted and tracked by our humans before it ever even entered into the swell window for Southern California. That the machines are, it's going to take them a little while to be able to do that. Hmm. What does Surfline look like in 10 years? Uh, in 10 years, you know, I think hopefully we continue to grow. We continue to make surfers' lives better. I think more people pay us for access to the service. <laughs> That's our goal. Uh, so more subscribers. Your car is clean? Yeah, my car is <laughs> clean. <laughs> um, I guess what, what's behind this question is, it seems to me is we don't know what technology is going to be like in 10 years. Like if we've learned one thing. If you look 10 years past, you know, previous, things are a lot different than we thought. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that technology is getting to that place, which all technology does, right, where it just gets cheaper and better and to a point where there's just going to be peer-to-peer -peer cam networks between you and me down at the beach, and mm -hmm. I might not need to use your cam network anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just so hard to wrap our heads around what – how quickly tech is going to, I'd hate to use the word devolve in this case, but lower cost tech, it's going to drive digital access costs to almost nothing for everyone. Do you guys think like, hey man, if the cam network is no longer, what is our primary value proposition? Yes. Yeah. Um, so we, do you we, think like, like, like does that scary? Do you guys even broach that? Like in 10 years, yeah. everyone's going to have a cam everywhere. Yeah, so there's been peer-to-peer -peer camera networks that have tried to spring up, and the problem is durability and reliability, and if you can't incentivize people to do that on a regular basis, it's just the thing dies, right? Um, and a lot of them have died. So the peer-to-peer -peer camera network, I, I wouldn't rule it out as a possibility, but it, it'll take a while yeah. uh, for, for that to be a reality. The technology is super interesting, it, most people at this they simultaneously overestimate the pace of technology and simultaneously underestimate the pace of technology right so you hear things like ai and you think i'm never gonna have to do anything ever again right i'll just wake up and my coffee will be made and my breakfast will come out of the box and it'll be hot and i won't have to go to work because some computer will do that for me and then we'll just have a universal basic income right like you just you can go you're right. part of the yang gang i can tell <laughs> you can, well, hashtag no. yang gang <laughs> I don't know what that is, but you can go right there, right, with your mind. And then simultaneously you can convince yourself that, like, man, you know, we're still accessing things through a browser and it still takes forever for my internet speed to load and, like, why can't my email work? Like, what's going on? Technology is horrible, right? Yeah. Um, so the trick for us as a business is estimating the right speed of technology and not getting too freaked out continuing to add value to the experience that we provide so that we aren't a one-legged stool. And I don't think we are. I think we provide value in all sorts of different ways. Cams are a primary value prop, but I, we just uh, got finished talking about sessions, which is a whole nother utilization of that existing camera network for value for our premium subscribers. So, yeah, I mean, 10 years is a long way to think in technology terms, and I don't, I don't, think, we, I don't think we'd think quite that far, to be honest. Like, yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine what the world's going to be like. But. Yeah. If I buy a watch from Rip Curl and I get my little sessions going, is my data safe? Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's safe with us. Absolutely. Um, yeah, nothing to worry about, Bassie. We got you covered. I've got something that I want to throw at you. It's a little bit off topic, but <clears throat> what do you think about the possibility of judging surf contests from the WSL headquarters as opposed to having judges on site? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about WSL judging. I, I Just off the cuff, I think there's probably some value gained in being there, present, you know, feeling the air, the wind, the salt, the conditions, the vibe, hearing the audience. Well, we might have commentators there, but just think of the overhead we saved by not sending yeah. eight guys around the world. Yeah, I, that you should... You should suggest that. Oh, I have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying, trying to get you to open up. It's like uh, opening up a can of tuna with a plastic just, fork. That, you know, the WSL does an amazing job, and I, I don't. Oh God, I just don't go. think a ton about their. <laughs> I don't think what, a ton about their business. What's what do you do for fun besides little league? Yeah, little league. Um, yeah, you know, I'm in that stage of life where a lot of what I do is what my kids like to do. So yeah. I have one son who's super into skateboarding. Yeah. So you're not skateboarding. Yeah. yeah you are. Yeah. Oh my it's so God. fun. It's so fun. I'm I'm like padded head to toe. I'm one of the. I'm like the biggest kook in the in the park. But there's so many amazing facilities, and we have so much fun going around and skating. So skate. Uh, I have another son who's really into like uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, which is like this Japanese card game. Mm. So I'm trying to figure that out okay. with him. You know, um, as a family, we love going to the beach, so we spend a yeah. lot of time down at the beach and getting yeah. in the water and surfing. I see you as a cultural influencer. Your position at the most powerful digital surf asset in the world is why you're sitting here in front of me. And because we're friends, I have access to you. So I wanted to talk to you. Yeah, surf is a great topic. And, and, you know, I think it's just testament to we're doing great work and we're in a great position and hopefully we can keep that going. You, it seems like you're the only game in town, quite frankly. Yeah, we don't feel that way. You know, I think we wake up every day working really hard to make surfers' lives better, and the whole company feels it. We work hard. We don't feel like we're on cruise control, that's for sure. Good. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Ross Garrett, everybody. Mm-hmm.